Welcome to the Eurointelligence podcast. I'm Wolfgang Munchau and with me are Susanne Munchenk and Jack Smith. Now, today we would like to talk essentially about British issues, starting with the confidence vote in Boris Johnson at the beginning of this week and where the UK is now. Now, we were, you know, among the few, we, you know, we're proud to say this here, who predicted that Johnson will survive because we we felt that in the end, the Tories didn't have a, an obvious alternative leader and a rebellion that doesn't have an obvious political motivation would have faced much greater hurdles to succeed than one where there was an obvious alternative political a plan and the criticism of Johnson was of, was not the fact that he was politically on the one side or the other side of the Tory party because he isn't he is on on pretty much you know his side but not there isn't a particularly clear side on which he's on uh, the criticism obviously related to his behavior and the most obvious candidates at least one of the most obvious candidates that could replace him you know was, was, was subject to very similar behavior several cabinet ministers were subject to very similar behavior And it, the, the many of the rebels distrusted each other more than they distrusted Johnson. So the rebellion is over. We can say so much, but this is not the end of the story. This is not the end, the, the political end of the story. Jack, what do you think is going to happen going forward? Yeah. So, I mean, the first thing to say about that, just on the kind of comment about, you know, maybe why Boris Johnson has been able to stay on and, and fleshing that out a little bit is... You know, I think I think the bigger issue always beyond the parties themselves is what they signified, which was drift, a lack of direction. It's kind of like, you know, as, as you say, you didn't get a sense of where Boris Johnson was trying to go politically or policy wise. However, he's ultimately, I think, safer than many people assume, because that's not just a problem with Boris. That's a problem with the Conservative Party that as a kind of collective, I don't think they necessarily know where to go. Um, however, there are certain things that always play pretty well with them. So. One of them is taking, uh, you know, a bit of a Thatcherist turn, and that looks to be the direction that Boris is starting to go in to stave this off. So recently I read about housing policy, and that's certainly an area where he's kind of leaning into that. One of the one of the notable parts of his kind of housing policy ideas, which he which he fleshed out yesterday, was expanding right to buy to something called housing associations. Now, um, for a lot of our non-UK listeners, you might not know what a housing association is. They're a pretty unique construction. They're kind of similar to social housing, but they're run by kind of private but not-for-profit organizations as opposed to directly by the government. It's a kind of weird, like, pseudo-Victorian construction. But anyways, the plan was to extend right to buy to these, again, for listeners who are not aware, um, right to buy was a kind of flagship policy of the Thatcher era that allowed residents of government-owned social housing, council housing, to buy their apartments or houses they were living in at discounted rates. What I'm sure a lot of our listeners will know is that housing in the UK is very expensive, and the after-effects of right to buy are a major reason why that's the case. It's interesting. Uh, I agree that Thatcherism is certainly the big temptation, but in many ways it was just depressing to see that The big idea is sort of something that is that's 40 years old. I do remember when Thatcherism was new. It was, you know, considered by many as potty, as, as strange, but it was certainly not considered boring or old. It was very clear that she broke with the with the past, and that there was actually some thinking behind it. Even critics ultimately acknowledged that some parts of it worked, 
when they thought it wouldn't. I was one of them. I, I thought it. I thought it was completely mad. But uh, you know, we learned there were certain suddenly certain things occurred in the economy that hadn't occurred before. There was a certain dynamism, a certain innovation. Uh, I just don't think you can. I think you're right in the sense that I don't think we can repeat that episode. Where I am perhaps a little bit more cautious in my judgment is that one of the lessons of the 1980s and you know subsequent decades too is that things intruded that were not foreseen and that changed the political landscape and the economic landscape. So this determinism that we have in the economic debate, you know, the idea of Britain being the sick man of Europe, these latest OECD forecasts that put the UK at the lowest end of the scale. I, I, I struggle to see, you know, to take this seriously because my experience has been, you know, it, it, we're just one big tech company success, one Google away from this being wrong. And you know it, it, we may be wrong, uh, but it, it is it, it, it's 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 unforeseeable that the world is too too chaotic to be able to so so clear about that. And probably also um, now after pandemic, um, where risk aversion is quite high in Europe, and I think compared to other countries where there is more of an institutionalized view on things on uh, such as risk averseness. Um, this is different here in the UK. It feels very different. It's much more individual, much more market-driven. So yes, you might have risk aversion, but there also are there, there is this also this uh, this drive to. Um, I mean, we here in Oxford, uh, where a lot of spin-offs uh, from universities are, are making their their ways, and uh, that, that's true for other universities too. And the easiness to actually create something here the passage also to create a company here. It's much more easier compared to anything you could actually uh, have to encounter in France or in, in, in Germany. So these things, uh, if you play them well, of course you can be a startup and entrepreneur in uh, continental Europe. But sort of the, from the tradition, UK has, has, has much better conditions uh, to do so. Yeah. Um, although I think making good on those conditions is another story, right? You know, so I, I think what's been what's become very clear from looking at the data is that the UK has historically suffered basically from underinvestment, right? A very strange phenomenon to have in a country with such deep capital markets, but nevertheless, it's it's suffered from underinvestment. So th there is certainly a lot of potential there, but I, I think there's like a, a middle level that's not being accessed so far. Uh, of course, these things can change and you can have something unpredictable that comes along in the 2020s that will kickstart something else. But it, it's about, I think, looking at the policy mix and saying, well, how do we make that kind of, you know, unexpected positive surprise, maybe more likely rather than less likely. Coming back to the Thatcher thing, I mean, the question back in the 1980s was kind of like whether this will actually work or not, you know, whether it will do what, what Thatcher and, you know, uh, other people like Nigel Lawson thought that it was supposed to do. The question I have now is whether you can actually implement it in the first place, right? The kind of, if I'm really oversimplifying, the fiscal side of Thatcher right policy was kind of built on selling the family silver, right? You had spending that you could cut to engender tax cuts. You had businesses that you could privatize. Um, you know, you had council housing that you could sell off, right? We're in a position now where in the UK, we have a much leaner state with less government spending, fewer state-owned businesses that you could actually privatize, and much less council housing. So, you know, the question kind of then is if you were actually going to take this turn, even if it could work theoretically speaking, could you actually do it without starting to hit 
some real snags in the implementation. No, I agree. The macroeconomic environment is different. And this is already clear where the government is likely not to pursue a, a Thatcherite uh, policy. I mean, they, they're saying they'd like to cut taxes. But the main tax decisions they, were, they did take were tax increases. And Johnson said he would only cut taxes. This is still you know, the, the long-term plan. But only when it becomes prudent to do so, and you know we've heard that during the Thatcher, during the Thatcher theory, they, they were fiscal conservatives in the sense that they that they don't like running large budget deficits, and Labour has ultimately accepted that that that, that idea, uh, the idea of, of a left wing party in Europe running large budget deficits. That's what they're scared of, being accused of being fiscally irresponsible. So the the, the parties of the left have, if anything, been been fiscally even more conservative and. And so we are dealing with, um, you know, we're not dealing with that part of the equation. So we're only dealing with taxes and spending. And the only way we get tax cuts is through spending uh, cuts. And Fletcher did enact spending cuts. And this government seems uh, more reluctant to do so because that would be potentially because they're now having to, to succeed in constituencies like in the north, of England and these famous Red Wall constituents, where it is much more difficult, where spending cut would, would work differently than they, than they would in the South. So this is why I agree the Thatcherite model, as a macroeconomic model, is not working. This is not this is not the the idea. They probably have to be at the low spending, low tax end of the debate, for, you know, of the of the equation for it to work politically. This will be better for them than the high tax, high high spend uh, end of the equation. But they have to. This is a more of a political balancing act for them. So, as I think I agree with Susanna, the, the main the main thing is innovation, mm-hmm. and if if you can if you can foster the innovation, but that unfortunately requires requires a certain degree of strategic planning. Now, innovation is not a specific UK issue. We've been criticizing mm-hmm. the German, the French. This is a very European uh, European thing. If there's a if you look at the sort of the map of innovation in Europe. The North is doing much better than the South. Mm-hmm. In the South, Spain is doing better than all the rest combined. Yeah, Portugal's this kind of weird exception where they're doing much better than the rest yeah, of Southern exactly. Europe. Exactly. There yeah. are there are pockets of, of this. The German, as Edmund Phelps is, is keeps keeps on saying, the German data are skewed because of the, the the large amount of innovation is usually is hidden by the fact that most of it is top down. Most of it is, you know, Volkswagen, you know, innovating its diesel engine or something, and that's that's not the kind of innovation that he that that we're talking about. We're talking about bottom up innovation, the startups, and the UK is the leader in Europe on startups, and Sweden is doing extremely well. But Sweden is a very small country by comparison, so the UK has that has that potential. This is also the way we discussed Brexit at the time, when we you know we acknowledged there would be an economic cost, a frictional economic cost, and that could be well you know over long over longer period, the success or failure of Brexit will will be determined by innovation. You know, if the UK achieves an offsetting economic model, the, the, the tragedy of Brexit is that the government that made that delivered Brexit, Boris Johnson, who delivered Brexit, is probably the least qualified person <laughs> the, the least on earth person to actually think exactly to deliver that to deliver the promise of Brexit. So that's the that's that's where this thing is trapped. But I have to say, I'm not at all more confident that that, that Keir Starmer has has a strategic idea of how to make Brexit work. Having you know not only campaigned against it and campaigned for a second referendum, but I haven't heard anything from him that that tells me that there is that there is something like a strategic plan 
about, about it other than, you know, maybe rejoining the single market or the, the customs union, which isn't a strategic plan, which is basically more the recognition of the failure of this plan. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that's what I would say. I mean, I, I had a couple of thoughts on that. You know, for, firstly, on the Brexit point, it's it's a bit of a finely balanced thing, I think, because on, on the one hand, of course, you can achieve some regulatory changes. But on the other hand, I think nixing free movement of labor is, I don't think, especially helpful for innovative processes, because, of course, you know, one of the things that does engender innovation is being able to have, I guess, I guess, innovative people, so to speak, move, you know, more freely And one of, I think, the great benefits the UK did have before we ended freedom of movement was that we were very capable of attracting people from the rest of Europe to come here and, and, and everything like this. Of course, we, we can still do this with a liberal enough immigration policy, but there's more friction built into the process, of course, uh, as anybody's ever had to try to apply for a visa in the UK will know. Um, you know, in, in terms of the lack of strategic direction, I, I you know, for both Labour and the Conservatives, I think there are more structural things at play there, too. One of the issues that we have in the UK, of course, thanks to our electoral system, is a very, I guess, you know, you have a marginal voter, basically, who is very important. Whether you are in government with a majority that lets you get things done, or whether you're hung parliament, or whether you're in a minority government, swings on very low percentages in a number of different seats. I think what that naturally produces is a kind of very timid political culture that's become quite scared of, you know, actually pushing the boat out, because pushing the boat out means that you're going to alienate some people. And while that might be something that you can do if, you know, you know that you, you're going to have to go into a coalition and you'll find some sort of compromise strategy, you know, the alternative here is like, we can't say anything because we can't lose these votes. And therefore you kind of muddle through. And I think I'm, you know, kind of seeing that in both the Conservatives and Labour at the moment. Yeah, no, you clearly see that Labour storm is clearly intent to avoid the giving the impression that he might undo Brexit. That's very clear. That's that's something that he, he cannot afford. Yeah. Uh, and that in many ways li limits his ability to, to say anything because he doesn't actually have a strategy. I mean, it's not, you know, you can't blame Starmer for Brexit. <laughs> so, so you can't, you know, it's perfectly understandable that he doesn't have a Brexit strategy. But now that the country is in Brexit, or has Brexited, if you want to use it as a verb, you probably assume that both parties would need a strategy and and I feel that none none of them do and not, nor do the smaller parties so it's it's a bit of a it's a bit of a conundrum also if you look at the I mean labor is leading the polls at the moment by six seven percentage points if you look at the volatility there was an interesting story out this week about yougov having having manipulated its own polls during the 2017 elections really? because they couldn't because they couldn't believe they couldn't they couldn't believe how badly the conservatives right. were doing in their polls absolutely and I, I and, saw that, and yeah. their poll was was ultimately not bad actually it, it was a good poll but it was surprising but it is telling us the story and I'm, and I'm not going to criticize any polling organization here but the point is what it's telling us there is an enormous amount of volatility we saw this in the german elections quite to to some extreme degree this uh, last year Yeah, the, our electors have become more volatile. So the six, seven percent lead that Labour enjoys, you know, if you look at the overall volatility of polling over the last five to ten years in the UK, a six to seven or even a ten point lead is nothing because if you, this can melt away in an election campaign and it can double in an election campaign. It can shift in both directions. Therefore, I'm I'm very cautious with any sort of predictions that Boris is sure to lose and that somebody is certain to happen. Um, you know, we've, we've seen that French election polls seem to be more stable. That's sort of an observation we've made in Europe. But Italian, German, Spanish polls 
and UK polls tend to be, uh, you know, tend to at least early on tend to give wrong impressions of what of what ultimately the result the result is. But what you could see in the French elections is that uh, events intrude and things are happened the way you couldn't foresee it. We had another contender from the far right just coming up, springing out of nowhere. Uh, and uh, although it looks like on the, on the figures level that nothing has changed because we still had a second round with, between Emmanuel Macron and Marine Le Pen, actually quite a lot changed during that campaign. And uh, there were a lot of upheavals and uh, changes on directions of people who voted or changed their votes and affiliations. Uh, if anything, there was actually a tale about how volatile and how loose the connection to their to their parties are. So it seems a, uni a very universal phenomenon. And, It's uh, strategic voting. I mean, we have this discussion uh, about strategic voting and um, never before, I mean, in the parties in France, for many of them, more than 50% actually voted strategically a party that they are not affiliated mm. with. So uh, it is, it's sometimes it is about, uh, I mean, that's a particular French system that, that has probably no bearings um, for the UK. And yet it might well be that the, the, the voters as such become more politicized in the way that they think strategically about their choices rather than their own own kind of personal uh, affiliation, but they say, okay, I want uh, I want to chase Boris Johnson out. How about can I best do that? That question would be valid here too. Yeah, I, I think uh, I think you actually bring up a very good point when you talk about that. You know, in, in, in French, of course, you call it the votitil, right? You know, um, in, in Britain, tactical voting, and yeah, I mean that that's a kind of variable that makes it especially hard to predict the outcome of the next election because of the importance that tactical voting or the lack thereof plays in determining election results in the UK. Obviously, a big factor will be how compact the kind of anti-conservative vote is in the next election. Um, I think what we've seen from kind of by-elections leading up to this point and from the last local elections was a relative amount of compactness. Certainly in the by-elections, the two biggest opposition parties, Labour and the Lib Dems, did not really directly challenge each other. You know, they didn't make a formal pact, but there was a kind of agreement not to campaign where the other party was stronger. That will be much more difficult to replicate in a big general election. Yeah. It will also be far more difficult for the Lib Dems to do as well in all of the seats where they contest against the Tories as they've done in the by-elections, partly because they're a smaller party with fewer resources and partly because their by-election strategy has kind of been be anti-everything and they'll actually have to come up with a platform that they can be criticized on. Yeah. No, no, I, I agree. This is, this is going to be, you know, we are in a world that is perhaps slightly more open than than the media coverage, uh, except for the future of Boris Johnson, which seems to be forever secure. You said it's like he's like Berlusconi. He's like impossible to get rid of, you know? Yes. yes. Eventually they got rid of him. But it, took, it, took, it took a fairly massive intervention by, by a lot of Europeans. I remember Trichet had to write a letter. <laughs> uh, it was almost a coup by the European Council to get rid of I mean, it took, it took, a, it, it took a foreign... Uh, I mean, you know, it's, some Italians consider this an, a declaration of war, even. Um, um, and it's, and, you know, I don't think any any Europeans will do that. Uh, but but it's it, it it was a yeah we we could be compared with Berlusconi, and it was a 
It was, uh, you know, there were parties. This was another thing, you know, bunga, bunga really bunga bunga parties. Sexual really misconduct Sexual misconduct, which wasn't the case here, but... but, uh, it's, but the, it's the case in the wider party. In the wider party. Tory party. I mean, there were, there were certainly parallels. And uh, in the Berlusconi's case, there were some, some very, very serious allegations. Um, and he survived. Um, and, and, you know, we, we, I remember speaking to, to people in his, in his own cabinet at the time. And and they were saying years before, you know, he's got to go. I mean, this is can't this can't be. I mean, and and you know, he kept on. He survived. He was a, um, and that's uh, you know that happens. Um, and you know, we've seen longevity of politicians. Now let's turn our discussion to to the other British, uh, the other British uh, or, issue or UK. Let me say UK. It's just not a British issue. Uh, to Northern Ireland, the protocol. Now there's been a story this week. That the um, uh, I mean you know I, I I'm I'm beginning to lose sort of track of where we are on this thing I have to say, <laughs> and, and maybe that's because that's where what is actually happening. I mean maybe things are very confusing. Susanna, can you explain? where we are or where we might be <laughs> well actually we don't know exactly where we are it just seems to be a moving target uh whenever there is an announcement there will be a bill out uh then uh you can surely it, it seems to be that there is also a postponement that comes shortly after and now it was supposed to be uh, a new bill out uh wednesday or thursday this didn't happen this week uh and the run-up after, I mean, Liz Truss, the only thing we know is um, mid-May, Liz Truss came out and announced that there will be a bill coming up that uh, will allow ministers to um, suspend parts of the protocol unilaterally. And she was assuring everyone that um, this would be in line with international law. Now, at the latest after the confidence vote, Boris Johnson apparently had a meeting with her and uh, some of the Brexiteer hardliner one of the MPs, and they redrafted the whole thing. It's particularly uh, Article 5 to 10. Uh, basically, it's about the checks at the border checks, but it will also mean that it, um, the U European Court of Justice has no constituency at all anymore in Northern Ireland. And also, they wanted to introduce a sunset clause for how long the law, uh, European law, can actually be applied in Northern Ireland. Of course, this obviously is completely illegal and international. It's, it's completely against the international law, and any pretense that it still is uh, would be with this draft version would be gone out of the window. Now, this way was an unusual way of Boris Johnson paying off some of the Tory members for the support in their confidence vote. But it also didn't go well to the cabinet. They didn't appreciate that. So they sent the whole draft back to the foreign ministry and said, we need another version. So now were this ends up, we don't know. It's like a ping pong game, it seems to be. What we do know is whatever version, the soft version or the hard version is going to come up. These are the two versions talking about for, for weeks now. It will take time to, for this to actually enact. So we haven't, we're talking about a year or something like that. So that can be with, with Tory rebellion, internal rebellion or without. But for the Euro Europeans, I think that it would be really wise to take a step back and let this drama play out and just watch it. <laughs> and before getting hyperventilated and just thinking, oh my gosh, what are they going to do? It's, it's, the, it's a particular UK drama. Yeah, I mean, I think as you identify, the overriding theme of the Northern Ireland Protocol fracas has been that it's been like waiting for Godot. 
like, you know, you sit around for ages and nothing happens. You know, there's a lot of noise, a lot of talking, and then nothing happens. And this has kind of been the consistent theme of it so far. Another, another thing, of course, is as you say, hard and soft, the bill will take a while. The harder it is, the longer it will take should it ever see the light of day, right? You know, you're talking about a very long process. It has to get through the cabinet, it has to get through readings in the commons, then it has to go to the Lords, then maybe, you know, we'll like send it back. So we'll send it back. <laughs> the Commons will have to deal with it again, so on and so forth. And the Conservative Party themselves are, I, I don't think they're united enough on this issue. You still have a substantial number of them who are very uneasy with the hard direction of the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill, obviously, as, as you correctly identified with the cabinet. More so than the cabinet, you'll have even more in the Commons, you know, all these kind of responsible Remainer types who Boris Johnson defenestrated when he became prime minister in 2019. So I'm, 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 I'm very skeptical that any kind of override or nuclear option to the protocol would actually see the light of day simply because the party's not there. And, and so, as you say, I couldn't agree more with you saying that the EU um, needs to stay calm. I think it's also a great um, lesson to the EU that just because the British government says they're going to do something doesn't mean they'll actually do it. And it's probably a good idea in almost all cases to wait until they actually do or don't do something to figure out whether it's going to happen. Uh, this is a trap, I think, incidentally, that the EU kind of collectively fall into during the Brexit process as well, where they kind of zigged a little, zig, they zigged and zagged a little bit too much with the direction that the debate was going, despite the fact that nothing was actually happening. You were bouncing from one side to the other, but everything in practical, substantive terms, was staying the same. Yeah, no, I agree. We, 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 back in those days, we made the point that the EU was uh, actually getting too too much interfering into the in, into the British debate, which provoked a counter reaction in the UK. You know, when we saw you know people campaigning here in the UK, and just because they felt they felt and misjudged the the political momentum at the time. And felt they could move to move on the bandwagon and secure a result that was conducive to them, or even undo Brexit, if some as some Europeans wanted wanted at the time. It's an old it's an old trap. I'm you know the only we always said at the time the the UK's failure to understand the EU is only matched by the EU's failure to understand UK politics, and that's that still seem, doesn't seem to have changed as we can see this now. Um, But I would say, I mean, sometimes to stay on the same place, you actually have to use some force. I mean, if you have a strong wind coming towards you. You probably have to do uh, have to have some force to counter counter that force in order to stay in the same place. And I mean, well, it's, this could be easily be done in the back in the back chambers, and doesn't have to actually be uh, in the front chambers. So leaving UK politics, UK politics was on the on the ground, trying to figure out how to how on earth. Can we uh, sort of find a compromise between the green lanes and the red lanes that Liz Truss was throwing out and the, um, I think, the express lanes that the Europeans were mentioning, how we can reduce? I mean, there are a lot of proposals out there and a lot of them in practical, technical terms. I think there is a, there's an agreement that there are, there is a possibility of a compromise that can be found. Um, from the legal perspective, I mean, what to do with the European uh, Court of Justice, that's a bit more tricky, um, but um, also not impossible to find solutions. There are a lot of arbitration processes uh, in, the, in the agreement. The question is still, will the DUP and the Northern Ireland play along? I mean, the DUP made put his fate, um, na nailed it to, to the Northern Ireland Protocol that the London will change something about it. 
they now uh, pro promise to say, okay, we're going to slowly come back to the executive depending on what concessions you will do. So it's no longer the 100% um, or nothing, but it still means that there has to be something for them to come back to the storm and, uh, and, and, and actually to accept that there is an assembly and there is an executive. Whilst at the same time, the crisis, I mean, there are so many issues to be dealt with in Northern Ireland um, um, that would need or require a government. And it's just holding the whole process hostage. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, my own assessment of what's going on in the internal Northern Ireland situation is that the protocol is one thing, but it's only one thing that in that equation. Mm -hmm. You know, I think this process has been massively complicated by um, the assembly election results um, and the fact that, you know, also the DUP probably does not want to go into a government with um, Michelle O'Neill as the first minister. Um, and they're kind of, I think, willing to throw the boat at the issue. Um, you know, I mean, important to remember that in, I think it was 2020, the DUP and Sinn Féin actually did sign on to an agreement to restart the executive in Northern Ireland And that agreement did involve an acceptance of the protocol. So yeah. in 2020, the DUP were willing to kind of, you know, let bygones be bygones on the protocol and go along with it for the sake of forming a government. In between that, I think the electoral calculus changed um, and therefore the DUP's own position on this issue changed. So um, the, uh, the question I have is even if the protocol issue were to somehow magically be resolved in the DUP's favor, would that actually mean that they would go back into the executive? Mm. I guess it's not only um, Michelle O'Neill that, that, that they have an issue with, but the whole prospect of the border poll, that, they, that, that this might come back to haunt them and they have to talk about Oh, yeah. I'm sure, I'm sure it's not Michelle O'Neill. You know, I'm, I'm sure it's not Michelle O'Neill as a person. No. I mean, I'm, I'm, sure, I'm yeah. sure she's lovely as a person, right? <laughs> no, um, uh, she, she's definitely not Jerry Adams, but... Um. Yeah, yeah, no. But I mean, it's, it, it, just to say it's complicated and Northern Ireland will stay complicated. It's something that a lot of Europeans know a little about and um, and that makes it complicated. I mean, we've seen them during the, the pandemic that some comments from the European Commission were clearly not really aware of how sensitive the issue of Northern Ireland is and um, the institutional setup, the Belfast Agreement, and how many, and how, how many ways one can tip on someone's toes without actually being aware of. Yeah, that, and that, that particular event was also the result of both inter-institutional dynamics in the EU and what was going on in the Commission itself. Mm -hmm. But that's probably um, that particular psychodrama um, you know, January 2021, you could probably spend an entire podcast series in and of itself dissecting that. No, no, we have in Europe um, a tendency to, that we overestimate our knowledge. I mean, there's no, an awful lot of, we've seen an awful lot of experts on the pandemic who then became experts on on Ukrainian politics and you know, relationships between Russia and Ukraine. And And obviously now there are experts on Northern Ireland. On Northern Ireland, um, we've <laughs> we've you know we're struggling to just to keep keep above water and trying to trying to understand. Uh, but you know to be an expert on all of these things is 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 a very tall order. I think on that note, we like to end our podcast for for today. Until next week, thank you for listening. <laughs>